I started this series last week, so we're doing this study in Revelation, and which is odd because a lot of times when you think of Revelation, you're thinking about the tribulation period, and we're thinking about heaven and all these descriptions and things like this. And at the beginning of this book, it actually starts off with this description or talking to the church. And it's so cool because Jesus introduces himself. Uh, I'm the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega. I'm the one that holds you in my hands. And then he begins to talk to this church of Ephesus. And we got into this last week. And if you missed it, go back and watch that online. We'd love for you to get caught up with this. But he said, I have something against you. You've left what was so most important. You left your first love. He said somewhere along the line, you got so caught up in what you did and, and, and doing things for yourself and the routines and the traditions and all this other stuff. And he said, you forgot that it was about me. He said, I wish you would go back and do your first works. I wish you would get back and make it about me and not about you. So easy to do. Now we get into Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. If you'll turn with me online too, if you're watching at home or from your car or wherever you're at, let's stop in this time to be able to search the scriptures together, together and to study these things and to uh, know what God was trying to tell these churches. And you think about why did God put them in the book of Revelation? Why are they here? Because Revelation is the time that we as a church look forward to the things that are to come. So I, I think a lot of these are application to like God saying, hey, if you are the last church, you living in the last days, it's important for you to know these things as well. And so we get into these. Uh, I'm, I'm, I was reading through this and I started thinking of this importance of this because it's easy to be oversold on things. Have you guys ever had somebody build something up so big to sell you on it and then when you got, got the actual product, it's like, this is not all it was cracked up to be. You know, I, I, I love laughing at infomercials. Are you guys with me? I'll, I'll watch infomercials just, just to laugh at them because they're so, so. Uh, I, I got this clip. It's this guy that he's selling a rubber hose or the hose. And that, that this is the clip that they show before they introduce their product. And I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, if that's how you handle a rubber hose, you probably should have never even left the house. Okay. It, it's not that complicated, but this is what they do. They have to do some sort of exaggeration to show how bad it was before they get to the part where it's so good. So they do it in black and white. If they're, if they're trying to sell um, uh, knives or whatever, they're showing the guy cutting his finger and all this other stuff. And then something like this comes on. It's the cheesy guy with like, now with three easy payments, all your life will be better. And it's, this item's going to change your life. And then they go in and telling you uh, the add-ons and, 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 oh, but there's more and it gets better. And I thought, sometimes when it comes to the Christian life, I think we almost like sell it that way. You say, well, we don't sell any. I know, I'm just talking about this presentation, this cheesiness of, you know, is your life stinky and upside down? Do you go through problems and headaches? Well, let me introduce to you Jesus. And all your problems are taken away and life gets better. And you know, you know what I'm saying? It's almost, wait, wait a minute. Let me, let's just take a poll. Has your life gotten better with Jesus? Say amen, raise your hand, something. Amen, absolutely. Has all of your problems gone away since you've gotten saved? What happened to that? See, I can tell you my, my sin and my debt and the things like that, man, but God's been good. But nowhere in the Bible does the Bible say that all of your problems go away. Now, if it's talking about sin being under the blood of Jesus Christ, raise your hand ten times over. Praise God for that. 
But nowhere in the Bible does it say that Christians don't have problems. Nowhere. We have this mindset of this, and sometimes we're misunderstanding who God is. Like, if I have God in my life, I'm, I'm, I'm just plow through life and I don't have problems. If I have God in my life, I should overcome everything. And, and that's a danger because sometimes when I have problems, we back up and say, God, did I do something wrong? Are you mad at me? Are you ignoring me? God, where are you? God, what's wrong with me? Why aren't I like all these other Christians that don't have these problems? God, shouldn't I be above? And I prayed and I asked God to take these away. And if I have faith of a mustard seed, I can move mountains. But I can't change this one issue in my life. Something must be wrong with me. This church that he is talking to, it's the second letter written by Jesus. It's to the church of Smyrna. Watch with me or read with me in Revelation 2 verse 8. And unto the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things which saith the first and the last which was dead and is alive. Now Smyrna, we went from Ephesus and now we're at Smyrna and this is kind of like a port city. It was a port city. Uh, it's kind of like what we would compare like New York. If you've ever been to New York, it's on, the, it's on the water right there. It's a port city. A lot of industry coming in and out. A lot of people coming in and out. Because of that, they built it up because it was kind of what touristy. So they would have a lot of attention with their buildings, their beauty, their gardens, all this stuff. They built it up. It was really an attractive place, which brings in a lot of people. They also used it as a, as a, a place for Rome to like rise up like... Uh, almost like you could say like temples. They, they worshipped Caesar. They worshipped a lot of their leadership when it came to that. Almost, almost cultish type thing that they had. It also had a lot of Jews that lived there. Now I'm not talking about those that believe Jesus Christ and that believe that he was the Messiah. Actually, they rejected the Christians. Christians were weirdos. They were looking for a conquering king. They were looking for him to come and rule. And then all of a sudden, this guy is born to peasant, uh, poor people. He's raised up by a carpenter. He goes around helping sick people all the time. And then he died on the cross like a thief. You want me to follow him as my God? I'm not following him as my God. They rejected that. There was a lot of division. Because of that, Christians faced a lot of division. They were the source or the center of hardship and things that was going on. They did not live in the Bible Belt. The church that they went to, the churches, Smyrna, these churches or churches in this area, that they did not have it easy, did not go well. Jesus knew that as he's writing this letter. Look, look at what he says to them. Revelation chapter 2, verse 9, he says, I know thy works. Hey, dear church, I know thy works. He said that in the first church. I know how hard you work. I know what you put into this. I know how you love me and tribulation, and poverty, but thou art rich. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Jesus says to them, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. You know, have you ever gotten a letter or words from somebody that was just at the right time? You got to understand, these people are just like us. Get discouraged, you get worn out, get tired. They're fighting, they're fighting, they're fighting. World problems, economy, all these things are mentioned in there. Opposition. And after a while, you just say, is this even worth it? Man, I'm tired. I just don't want to do this anymore. I'm, I, I'd rather just walk away. This is frustrating. Does it even matter? Am I even making a difference? Christians will have those thoughts. 
Christians will have the thoughts that it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm, I'm spinning my wheels. I'm not as good as everybody else. So Jesus writes this letter to this church to encourage them. Read it like this. You could say, dear church, you better be ready for difficulty. You talk about what the application is to things like this. He says in Revelation 2 verse 9, did you notice the word that he starts off with? I know thy works and tribulation. Tribulation. Now, that word tribulation has a number of meanings. The biggest part of that meaning is pressure. Church, I know your pressure. It means trouble. It means to be persecuted. It means to be burdened or under anguish. There's phrases that we use in our day and age a lot. We'll, we'll say something like, man, I'm really under the gun at work. You know, it's, it's a phrase that means something. It's the same thing if you say, man, they're bringing down the hammer at work. It means that they, they're putting a lot of pressure on us. They're, doing, they're adding to our lives things to try to make us get things done. But it's extremely uncomfortable. Actually, in their day and age, there was an actual torture that they would do. And they, they recognized that it was they would take something that they knew and, and use that as like a, a, a word of speech or a form of speech. This is a terrible thing that they did, but they would lay somebody on their back. And then they would take like sandbags or something, something like that, weights, and they would slowly add one at a time to their chest to make their breathing slowly stop to where they were diff- literally like suffocate. They would, they would be smothered doing this. Jesus is relating to him. He says, I know what keeps being added to you. I know how uncomfortable it is. I know you feel like you're being pressed beyond measure. I know that you're exhausted. I know that you feel like if I could just catch my breath, if I could just get ahead, if I could just get through this. When this happens, if we don't handle, if we don't talk about stuff like this, we don't know how to handle stuff like this. Actually, we back off with the idea of what, what, what did I do? What did I do, God? I, I, I'm, I'm trying to please you, and I want to make you happy, and I'm trying to serve you. My kids are in church, and I'm, I'm following you. What did I do wrong? Or you pray and say, God, take this pressure away. God, I, I don't want to have this in my life, but Lord, I don't understand why this burden and this trouble, or however you want to do it, or say it, why is it on me? Because it get, begins to weigh on you. You go to bed pressure. Wake up with pressure. Sometimes pressure is constant and you can't shake it and you just go through life with this pressure of keeping up with your job where they put all these demands on you and thinking, man, I've got to do it. I've got to do it. There's pressures that come from your spouse of trying to be something you're not or trying to add up to be something you're not and you're just tired. It's pressures from being a parent. I've talked to people that have had their kids grow up and get older and they're out of the house and then they're slowly, they, they get away from God or they get out of church and things like that and your heart just breaks thinking, man, I would do anything just to have them back. I would do anything to be able to see them love God or serve God or do what's right. And you say, what does that do to you? It puts pressure on your heart and mind. It's just a weight. It's a burden. And you say, I pray and I pray and I pray and nothing changes. I can't escape this feeling. Let me lay it out. There's, there's two parts of pressure. Number one, pressure comes from just being in a broken world. You guys understand that because we're born in a broken world, you're going to have brokenness in your life. It just has to do with the world that we live in. Job 14.1 said it like this, and he was talking to him about life, being real with life. And he said, a man is born of a woman of a few days and is full of trouble. 
You don't have to go looking for it. You don't have to, you don't have to do anything wrong. You're just born in this world. I, I was given an example of, uh, a, of Jordan has this trailer and we have this stuff in our front yard and everything. Somebody broke into his trailer and took out a bunch of his stuff that he just bought this. It was like two weeks old. You say, what did Jordan do wrong? Jordan lives in a broken world. You guys understand, we live in a broken world. We live in a sin-filled world. I, I thought about it when it came to this. Jesus had 12 disciples. One of his 12 disciples betrayed him. And you say, what did Jesus did wrong? No, Judas was just part of this world. Adam and Eve had two kids. One of their kids ended up being a murderer. Can you imagine knowing that you can't blame this on anybody else in life? Couldn't blame it on their friends. You couldn't blame it on their cousins. We like doing that. It's like they, they got that from Dave's kids. Okay, that's why they're so bad. They just, you know, you just blame it on somebody else. Adam and Eve are sitting there saying, Who, where'd you get your training from? Like, we, we, we got our training straight from God. And you can't even raise two kids without one being a murderer? We live in a sin-filled world. And there's brokenness. I'm going to tell you right now that you're going to have pressure in this world just because you live in a world that is broken, filled with sin, however you want to put it. But there's a second thing. There are pressures from the world, but there's also pressures from the enemy. You see, he says in this passage, verse 9, he says, I know thy works, thy tribulation, thy poverty, but thou art rich. Notice what he says next. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Blasphemy. Evil speaking. It means to tear you down. But it is not just a matter of tearing you down in a matter of you said something that offended me. These weren't just offended statements or offending statements that they were saying. Blasphemy literally was talking about this idea to rip people apart. To drag you down, to get in your head, to make you think that you weren't good enough. The Christians during this time, and I, I read a number of things dealing with their history, they dealt with a lot of opposition of what people were saying because people would spread rumors about this church. Churches in general, they have communion. They would rise up and say, this is his body broken for us. And then they'd spread rumors and say, you know, they actually have a form of uh, cannibalism. You want to stay away from those weirdos. They would call each other brother and sister, something that they did in scripture, something we even do today. And they would sit around and talk and make rumors about them that they, would, they believed in incest and things like that. They would, they would say all these awful things about them. You guys know that it's easy, sometimes it can be easy when somebody says something that is not true and you just like brush it off, but sometimes Satan knows exactly how to say things to get right to your heart and mind. He's good at it. He knows how to tear you down. He knows how to get in your head. He knows how to manipulate your mind to make you think that you're not good enough, you'll never add up, make you wonder what other people are saying by running rumors through your mind. Who believes that? I don't know. Why did they say that? I don't know. I, um, I went through this thing where through the years I've had different people call me, upset at me and stuff like that for being pastor. It just comes with the territory. You know, they make this statement. Sticks and stones break your bones, but what? Words will never hurt me. Let me tell you, that is a huge lie. That's a lie. You can prove it. I've done funerals for people that have taken their life. 
over receiving a letter or words or rumors that were spread about them. Words are powerful. You guys need to remember that words are powerful. If you don't believe me, read the book of James and what the Bible talks about, the power of the tongue, the power of what we say. Words are powerful. Got this phone call and uh, talking to this person that I loved, I respected, I served with. And they just started getting on to me about things, and they said, you use, you use way too many sermon illustrations when you preach, too many visuals. He said, I'll be honest with you, uh, Tony. He said, I think you would have been way better off if you would have not stepped into being a pastor, and you would have just stayed as a junior church worker or whatever, because that's kind of your niche. That, that messed with me. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, wait, wait a minute. You know, what, what are you saying? I'm like trying to be all cool and tough like, Sticks and stones can break my, but your words, you know, you, you want to say that. You, you just, you know, that, that, that hurts to say something like that. And then I said, well, I'm going to come back and just give a spiritual illustration. I said, hey, listen, Jesus used illustrations almost every time that he preached. He was always using illustrations. He always used stories. He always used visuals. And he came back and he said, well, the difference between you and Jesus is Jesus used scripture. And I tell you what, to imply that I don't preach with Scripture was one of the biggest insults that somebody could possibly give. And you say, what did you do? I wanted to punch them. That's what I wanted to do. Say, Christians don't punch people. I know that. But I still wanted to. It hurts. It hurts. Did you notice what the Bible was saying about the blasphemy that is against this church? Do you realize why Jesus was even saying that? Because obviously things that were said were affecting them to make them say, hey, this isn't worth it. Or maybe they're right. It gets in your head. It manipulates your feelings and emotions. Because God created us with humans' emotions, and, and Satan loves to play on those things. At the bottom of that, he says, hey, by the way, you need to know that they're from the messengers or from Satan himself. And I'm not saying that anybody that's ever said anything to hurt you is straight out of the pits of hell, but I am saying the ones that are straight out of the pits of hell will manipulate anybody to try to hurt you. Be careful with what you say. Be careful how you correct. Be careful what you post. And I say that in the walls of this church, but I'm saying outside of the walls of this church, outside of the walls of any church, there is an enemy that will do anything possible to try to tear you apart. And he's subtle. He's not going to just kick in the door. He'd rather say something about you to get in your head to make you want to quit. To make you think you're not good enough. To raise up those kids and have those kids say something later to you about, you drug me to church and you were trying to brainwash me, mom and dad, or all these kind of things. Or you go to work and have people say, you're nothing more than a hypocrite and we all know it. Wait a minute. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I do mess up too much. He said, I know the blasphemy of the Jews, which were supposed to be God's people, and he even says that, and are not. I know what they're doing to you. You see, it's amazing how we can read a passage out of Revelation and have so much application to us. And why do you think Jesus is writing to this to the church, writing through John, giving this letter, because there was a bunch of people that are going through things, 
and they wanted to quit. Stepping back slowly saying, guys, maybe we're just not good enough. Maybe we're not cut out for this. You see, the goal of the enemy is in verse 10. He says, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. He may be tried. He shall have tribulation ten days. Be, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He said, cast you in the prison. That's another way of just saying Satan's going to try to take you out. Can I just, with all love and sincerity as a pastor here, say to everybody online, say to everybody that's sitting right here, if you stand for God, you are Satan's opposition. Did you hear me? If you stand for God, you are Satan's opposition. Let me put it another way. And they wanted God, you are in the way of what he wants to do. If you stand for God as a parent and you say, these are my kids, and I'm going to serve the Lord, Satan says, you have got to go. I've got to take you out. You are in my way. Satan says, I want your kids, and you are in my way. You say, why can I serve God and do more, and, and the more I pray, and the more I read, and the more I follow God, and the more I give, and the more I try to dedicate my life, the harder things get. Because the more you do those things, the bigger of a threat you become to, to Satan and everything he's trying to do. Do you understand when God calls us into the Christian life? He didn't say, you know, grab a backpack and, 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 and some fruit snacks and let's take a walk in the park and go to Disney World. He actually says, put on the full armor of God that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. If we paint the Christian life as just being like a walk in the park, we deceive people not understanding the opposition that we're actually facing in this world. Right. In order to tell somebody that you need to put on the full armor of God literally means that there's an enemy. He's going to shoot at you. He's going to curse at you. He's going to try to take you down. He's going to try to manipulate you and do everything brutally possible to tear you apart. He says in this passage, he says, they will try to grab you, throw you in prison, and shut you down. Actually, it lists 10 days, if you guys notice that. 10 days in this verbiage of what it was trying to say. It's kind of like us using just a form of speech of uh, saying, man, I've been working all day long, or it took me a day and a night. It, it's, it's a phrase. It just represented a short length of time. What he was saying in that passage was literally, it wasn't exactly like he knew that the prison sentence was going to be 10 days. They're going to try to do whatever they can to take you down, but they can't. In order to tell somebody that they can't fully shut you down when it comes to this. I would rather preach a prosperity gospel. Wouldn't that be easier? I mean, to fill up churches, man, serve God, do what's right, give, and watch the blessings just flow out. And that is true, the blessings do flow out. But that doesn't mean that you don't live in a broken world, and that doesn't mean that you still don't have an enemy. That's pressure that comes in this world. In reality, if we don't preach messages like this, then we're not prepared for when Satan swings at you and you get knocked down out of nowhere, and you're just like, whoa, where did that come from? Man, who hit me? Why am I, why am I bleeding? What, what happened here? Because you weren't ready for what Satan was doing with the agenda that he had for you. And like I said, it'd be easier if he did just wing it. It usually comes from words. It comes from people. It comes from rumors. It comes from opposition. He says this, I know thy works. He says, I know your tribulation. 
Isn't that powerful? I know. Jesus was saying, I know your pressure. I know what you're under. I know what you're feeling. I know it. You see, sometimes we have this idea that God is so far removed from the problems that we have, from the news that we get, from the, 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 the issues in life. He tells them this, but notice this. He didn't just say, dear church, be ready for difficulty. He says, dear church, it's going to be okay. Now, I'm using my own words there, so can I explain how he says it's going to be okay? Because this passage is filled with this message. When it was written, it was written out of love. It'd be like you writing to somebody that you knew one of your kids or somebody was going through all a hard time. You knew that they were under a lot of pressure. How would you write a letter? I know what you're going through. I understand what you're dealing with. I'm, I'm going to identify with that pain and that hurt. But he goes deeper with this. He says this. He says, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty. But then notice he interjects in this. Did you notice this? But thou art rich. Say, that, that doesn't make sense. You can't say poverty, and that poverty in that passage literally means to have things stripped out of your life. That's what it means. I mean, it means to be homeless. It means to be hungry. It means to be empty. And God says, I know that. But he said, let me tell you, you are rich. Remember what, what he was saying from this. He says, guys, I need you to do something. He said, I need you to look up. Said, what they did to you, I know, but he said, I need you to look up and understand what I give to you is so much greater than what they do to you. You guys are going to get it. I promise you, in this world, you're going to get it. And things are going to be stripped out of your life, your jobs, your money, your finances, your future. Everything's going to be ripped out of your life. But let me tell you, they cannot take away what God has given to you. Amen. Cannot. He will try. He'll get into your head. He will do all these things. It's amazing how we can take our money and try to build a big house, but it's only Jesus that can make it into a home. Amen. Only Jesus. It's amazing how you can have an elaborate wedding and have all the fixings and everything to go all out with something like that, but you can have a wedding, but only Jesus can give you a true relationship. Amen. You can have a lot of acquaintances and a lot of Facebook friends, but only God can give you true friendships in your life. There's so many things that God gives us. And I think even for us celebrating the 4th of July, we sit there and say, this is wrong, and this is wrong, and this is wrong. And God says, yeah, but what is right? What do you have? Will you look up? Will you see what I've done? Will you see how I blessed you? Will you see what I've given you? We are rich as Christians. Let me prove something to you. Take the celebrities that are on the front page of everything, and entertainment tonight likes to high, highlight them and everything, of their private yachts and private homes and all these things that they have all over the country and islands and stuff like that. And yet they have to put themselves to sleep with drugs and alcohol. And, and I'm not saying that we don't have problems within the church, but I'm saying that the problem is they have nowhere else to turn to to get what they truly need and want in life. And money can't buy it. He says, I need you to look up. The second thing that he says in this passage, he says, fear none of those things which shall suffer. He says, don't fear. That word fear literally means to be frightened or be alarmed or just to revere, to, to be afraid of something like that. God was telling them, I have a mission for you. Yes, you're the opposition of Satan. And yes, you stand in the way. But if you're a parent, God has a plan for you to stand in front of those kids. If you were a leader in this church, God has a plan for you to be there. But it's easy to want to get out of that spot. 
Because of fear. Fear is a mental thing. I've told you guys for years, I, I grew up in Alabama, man. I'm, I'm a redneck. I am a hillbilly. You can name it, whatever. I worked on a chicken farm. I bailed hay. I, I, I could tell you stories. I did all of that stuff. I rode on tractors. I was a hillbilly. I am proud of it. I'm not ashamed of my heritage, whatever. I, I, I love the childhood that I had growing up. But with part of that culture also comes snakes. I hate snakes with all of my heart. I hate snakes. How many of you could say that I absolutely hate snakes? Raise your hand, testify, all right? We are not a snake-handling church. If you thought you walked into one today, we're not that kind of church. I hate snakes, completely despise them. I had stories of growing up in Alabama where I would literally be going outside in the hills of Alabama and hear that rattle in the, in the grass, long grass around me. You know what that does to you? You stop in fear. You're literally standing there in fear, looking around, where is that snake? And I know that's something you see on movies and stuff. Pastor Dave can testify. That was part of our childhood. I remember we had the chicken houses, and on the side, there was the concrete, and it kind of got washed out so you could kind of get up underneath, or you could get your hand up underneath there. And on the side of that chicken house, um, I, I remember just walking past one time, and as I walked down is beside that chicken uh, cooper, the, the pen that they had out there, you could hear just like, like tons of rattlesnake um, just shaking their tails, and they, they do it as a mechanism to try to make you fearful, to make you walk away. I remember being outside in the grass one time and seeing a huge snake, but then seconds later, I couldn't see the huge snake. You know, the only thing worse than seeing a big snake is not seeing the big snake, okay? <laughs> That's the only thing worse because you don't know where to go. It does something mentally to you to where all of a sudden, because I was around it so much, if, if my grandpa said, will you go out to the barn and get something? I'm like, yeah, no problem. Be watchful. I saw a snake out there. I'm like, no way. Uh-uh, I'm done. I'm not doing it. I don't want to be in there. You know, I was 4th of July weekend. It was Friday, getting ready for uh, having the time off and everything. And I, I bought a bunch of mulch. I bought flowers. I'm doing my flower beds. And I have my porch, right in the, right, uh, the, our front porch right there. And there was a bunch of leaves and junk and stuff that just blew underneath there at, uh, under time. And I go to reach in there. And then I pull back and thought, I'm not doing that. You say, what were you fearful of? I was fearful of snakes. And you're going to ask me the question, Pastor Tony, have you ever had a snake under your porch? Never. I've never seen a snake on my property. But the thing is, because of the stuff that I've heard and been through in my past, it's in my head to where my head makes me think that there could be a snake under there. You can call me a chicken. I'm okay with that. Call me a chicken. You come to my house and put your hand underneath there. I don't care. I'm just, I'm not going to do it. I went and got a rake and reached under there and pulled everything out with a rake. You know, I'm thinking, I'm going to play this as safe as possible. Fear is a powerful tool that doesn't even have to have reality to it. It just manipulates your mind to do one thing. Back away. Did you guys hear me? Satan will use fear and what God has called you to do to back away. It's easy to do, especially when you're thinking, I'm just going to mess things up. I'm already heard all this negative. I've been through this. God put this church there on purpose. 
You understand that this church and all the wickedness in this city and everything going on, God was simply telling them this is not the time to back up. Do you guys hear me? It's not the time to back up. We don't retreat. We don't back up. I don't care what we hear. I don't care what's out there. Satan is a serpent. He was a serpent in the garden. He's slithering around in this world today. He will strike at you at any time. But God makes it very clear that God is greater than anything we're going to face on this earth. We have got to understand that we cannot be run by fear. Then he says this next thing in this. Not only did he say, look up, don't fear, but he said, don't quit. At the end of verse 10, he says, be thou faithful unto death. Be thou faithful unto death. Why would God even have to say that to this church? Let me tell you, it's this simple. Because it's in every single one of our minds to want to quit. Sometimes we just back up from things and sometimes we just throw in the towel and say, I'm not doing this anymore. Can we be real? I mean, just, just being honest, even in relationships and marriage, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm done. I'm tired. So much pressure on me all the time, all the time. Dealing with kids, I'm, I'm just done. Dealing with ministry in 2020. Dealing with the pressures that are all around us. And, you know, now, now they've, in California, made up some sort of law or whatever saying that churches can't sing in California and all this pressure, pressure, pressure. Let me make a statement to us. We don't fear and we don't quit. I'm not talking about, there's all sorts of things going around. I'm talking about when it comes to being right and wrong. When it comes down to the wire, being what's right and what is wrong. And right now, our world needs the church. And right now, the world needs Christians. And right now, they need answers. And I'll tell you what, they're not going to get them anywhere else in this world. I promise you that. But they can get them from the people sitting in this room and the people watching online right now. Get answers. God was reaching out to that church, you know, as he's writing, John the Revelator's writing this, going, oh, why, why do you want me to write this? Because I know people. I know my people. And it's easy to want to quit. Whatever God's called you to do, when it comes to ministry, COVID-19 can be in your mind saying, this is my opportunity just to back off. This is not the time to quit. And I can tell you this, God has a way of moving us around and changing the way we do things and things like that. But there's a big difference of following God's leadership to do things differently and quitting on the mission that he's given us. He finishes with one last statement. It's actually not the way that he finished, it's the way that he began in verse 8. He gives us this statement of we win. Look up, don't fear, don't quit. Dear church... We win. You say, that's not actually in there. He gives it through his introduction, and sometimes we can overlook the simple things that we read. Under the angel of the church of Smyrna write, these things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. It's not a random thing that he says, oh, John's writing and, you know, listening to Jesus and like, how do you want me to open this letter? I'll throw this in there. Oh, that sounds good. It wasn't random like that, okay? It wasn't random whatsoever. It was a matter of Jesus telling him, he said, they need to know who's standing with them. 
The, the, the Revelation chapter 1 verse 11 also states Jesus as being the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Have you ever wondered why Jesus, our God, introduces himself like that? I'm the first and the last. I'm the first and the last. God was saying at the very beginning of time, it was me. I spoke it into existence. I created the sun, the moon, and the stars. I created time. I created everything that you have. I created your bodies. I created life. I created hope. I'm the last. It ends with me. Jesus said, I am the Alpha and Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I started it, and I will finish it. We must understand. It doesn't matter what Satan throws at us. It doesn't matter what happens in this world. We win in the end. He proves it in the second statement that he gave when he was describing this. As he said, I was dead. He was literally, he talked in this church about the persecution of being under pressure. No one knows more than Jesus Christ that had people lie, blaspheme against them, the ones that were Jews, the one that says you're a liar, you're a hypocrite, you, you are none of these things, all these things that was there. He says, I know what it like means to be betrayed. I know what it means to have all these things. They, they nailed him to a cross. He talked about pressure. They, they put, drove nails through his hands and his feet, the crown of thorns. They spit on him. They mocked him. And he died. Jesus was saying, I understand that. And he says, I was he that was dead and now is alive. Literally making this statement. Nothing they can throw at me will ever stop me. And he's making that to identify with the church that he's writing to. We are in Christ. At the end of that passage when he said they shall persecute you and all these things. And then in verse 11 he says this. You will not see the second death. The worst thing that Satan can possibly throw at us as Christians is heaven. You think about that. The worst thing that he could possibly say is you're going to die. I'm going to go to heaven. Is that the best you got, Satan? He's threatening me with going to heaven. See, the thing is, the whole reason we have this is Jesus knows us. You talk about what, what all they're going through and what they're, they're facing and everything. Jesus is saying, hey, church, dear church, dear Fellowship Baptist Church, dear, put your name in there. I know what you're going through. I know the pressure you have. I know what they're saying. But I need you not, I need you to look up and remember what I've given you. I need you to get that fear out because I don't need you to be backing up. He said, I, I, I need you to not quit. You, I don't care what your age is. I don't care how you've messed up. Don't quit. Be faithful to the end. And he says, after wrapping this up, he just says, here's the thing. We win. We are on the winning side. Maybe we need to be reminded of this because of the fact is that Satan's been working you over in your mind. Maybe you've thought about quitting. Maybe you've thought about backing down. We stand with the one that has conquered death. What else can they throw at us? We're on the winning side. 